Welcome to Climate Radio. I spent most of 2009 dedicating myself to producing a weekly programme on the UN Climate Talks, at a time when years of careful deliberation were due to end in a climate-saving agreement in Copenhagen. During those talks, four of us made a daily report from both inside the conference centre and outside on the streets, where almost daily protests were being made and a parallel civil society conference provided more colour, inspiration and genuine solutions. At the end of it all, everybody's effort and good intention was swept aside when the US forced a weak voluntary agreement on the rest of the world through a combination of bribes and pressure. For many, including myself, that outcome was unspeakably depressing. In a tactical reassessment, climate activists turned away from focusing on the international talks to working at a national level on stopping extreme energy projects through campaigning and direct action. This made sense since the capture of governments by vested interests was limiting both their ability to kick the carbon habit at a national level and contribute constructively to a climate agreement at a global level. It's four years on and there is a new push towards getting a climate agreement in Paris in 2015. The context has changed. Financial markets are increasingly aware that disaster-prone fossil fuel companies represent an investment risk and that their stocks are overvalued and artificially inflated in a carbon-constrained world. National governments too face a crisis of legitimacy as they operate increasingly against the interests of their populations, serving instead the interests of corporations and the banks. In a post-crash world, the rise in popularity of zombie movies is surely not coincidental. The latest report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change released in October showed us that in the absence of an effective international agreement, we are on a high emissions scenario, racing towards an inhospitable five-degree world of escalating extreme weather. It also showed us that if we switch rapidly to a low-carbon pathway, it is still technically possible to limit warming to 2 degrees centigrade. I spoke to a veteran of the talks, Asad Rayman of Friends of the Earth, for his assessment of the likely outcome just before he left for the latest round of talks in Warsaw. What do you think about the IPCC's latest report? Is that going to inject a new urgency into the talks? Well, we hope so. I mean, I don't think we can have a much starker warning from the world's climate scientists about not only the need for urgent and ambitious action, but they're very, very clearly set out uh, to prevent catastrophic climate change, prevent a breaching of key temperature thresholds, such as a two-degree level, although many, including 100 developing countries, most of civil society and many climate scientists believe that at, uh, a 1.5 degree level is a much safer level and that two degrees leaves us very open to much more dangerous impacts. Uh, within that, they've said that there is a limited climate budget, there is a limited carbon budget, and, uh, and we have to live within that. And they've identified the main sources of uh, our carbon pollution. And so now what we have to do is, is, is turn that into real political action. So is it the warning bell? Well, I think we've had 25 years of warning bells. There's nothing in the report that I don't think anybody knew before. Right. Everything is there. 
the warnings are just starker, more grave, but then on a weekly level we see a new report come out. You know, the World Meteorological Office re issued a report this week which said that emissions are at, a, at, at the highest global level ever and are increasing. So despite the stark warnings, despite the impacts in front of our eyes and despite the testimonies and of millions of people around the world, we haven't turned the corner yet. Yeah. One of the things in the report that stuck out for me was that there's a state that since 1990, there's been a, which is around the time that these talks kind of started, um, the CO2 emissions have risen by 54%, which really shows that the global community has kind of failed to get to grips with this. Do, do you think the way that the talks are going, do you, do you see much room for useful um, things to come out come out of it do you, do you, what, what do you what do you think is potential for this uh, particular summit well I, I think the uh, the potential positive outcomes of the of the climate negotiations and of the summit are in direct proportion to the power and influence of you and I of citizens from around the world and it's only when we increase our power and and diminish that of the powerful vested interests who influence our government to continue the business as usual, the, the fossil fuel industry, then that's the only dynamic that will make the change. It's, it's that that is key, and uh, on that I would say that increasingly, and we're seeing around the world now, I think we're beginning to see the re-emergence of a new, much more vibrant climate movement uh, that is much more focused and understands that the fights are around energy, of stopping new dirty energy projects, fossil fuel extraction from around the world, whether it's the Arctic, fracking or tar sands, but also being able to put forward real concrete solutions such as uh, community decentralised energy systems at a global and a European and a national level. So I think there is real hope, continues. Um, and we hope that now that we're starting to see some of these issues also being reflected in the negotiations, that we can begin to see some progress. But um, will these negotiations... Uh, save the planet? No. Do they have the potential to do that? Of course. And we are the, no, I suppose, the, the the key ingredient as global civil society and as global movements. But it's as stark as that. The more, the stronger we are, the more likely we're going to see an outcome in 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 the climate negotiations. In terms of like the the kind of power power dynamics, the the, the rich world seems to hold kind of sway. Uh, they, they're obviously better, better resourced to, 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 to bring huge delegations to the talks and stuff. And the EU's uh, is, is central to that. That they seem obsessed with pushing this idea of, of, of carbon trading as, as the only solution. It almost seems. But there are other um, solutions on the table, aren't there, from the, the global south and civil society? What, what, what kind of things should we really be doing? Do you think, if we we want to make a difference, you know, in, in the time frame that the IPCC is suggesting we actually need now? Well, I think the most critical one is, uh, is you're absolutely right to say that the broken, busted policy initiatives, the, the carbon markets, the proposals, we have to step away from. And there are proposals from some countries, like some ALBA countries, for a moratorium on, the, on, on new carbon markets. It's stopping the headlong rush into developing new markets, even while the existing ones fail, don't reduce carbon pollution, and are, are wide open to 
both double counting to handing out permits to pollute to big dirty industry such as for example one of the sponsors of the of the climate negotiations this year Ansaromittal the big steel multinational which receives about 1.6 billion euros worth of um free permits to pollute from the Europe, from the emissions trading scheme, the European carbon market system. So I think we've got to stop those. And there are real solutions on the table. There are real solutions such as proposals on energy, uh, global feeding tariffs, financing supporting energy transformations around the world, uh, much more concrete, more direct, uh, not only challenge and deal with the climate crisis, but also with the fact that over a billion people around the world don't have access to any energy at the at this moment so it can be a win-win for both people and the planet and both for from a climate perspective as well as a, a social and economic perspective so those are the things that i think we'll many of us will be fighting for and hoping to see some positive outcomes of rich countries are going to need to figure out how to finance that aren't they as well i mean there's um i think it's a meeting of, of, of uh, finance ministers what 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 do you, what do you think they, they can't just leave it to the carbon markets like the all private finance like they always seem to suggest can they it's, we need something well, more uh, well unfortunately that seems to be where uh, particularly countries like the united states and others uh, have been proposing that the even the paltry sums that have been mentioned the 100 billion that was promised in copenhagen from 2020 onwards um that that will be largely proposed largely either from carbon markets or in the forms of loans or private capital directly to to multinationals. Um, but there are challenges and, and what we do need to see is, is, again, some real solutions like a financial transaction tax, like special drawing rights, like reducing our military expenditure. There are many, many different budgets out there and finances out there that can be redirected to ensure that we have some adequate finance and that developed countries fulfill their both legal as well as their moral and political obligation to help developing countries to be able to grow cleanly and, and to face the challenges of climate impacts that are already being felt by bil- millions if not billions of people. Yeah, and I'd add to that the fossil fuel subsidies that we're still seeing. I mean, people always talk about putting a price on, on carbon, but actually we're doing the reverse at the moment, aren't we? We're, we're, we're subsidising fossil fuels. I think six pounds to every pound that we're actually spending um, subsidising renewable energy. So it's just 500 billion a year or something dollars globally. This is a, just has to end, doesn't it? Absolutely. And this has been one of the demands that's been echoing around the world over the last month whereas many different organizations came together in a global month of action called reclaim power which brought together uh, friends of the earth greenpeace 350 jubilee south via campesina and many many others uh, to amplify and echo a message that resonates for many many different communities and struggles on the ground all around the world which is to stop all new dirty energy projects to end the taxpayer handouts to dirty energy corporations and to support community decentralized energy systems and particularly the hand taxpayer handouts to dirty energy corporations we we know that in terms of direct and indirect uh, subsidies to uh, big oil and to other big um, fossil fuel industries those can range from anything 
Some reports say half a trillion, some reports go up to about 1.3 trillion. Uh, even here in the United Kingdom, we hand out every single year uh, hundreds of millions to the oil and coal industry to continue to pollute. We give tax breaks to fracking in the fracking industry so that they can uh, continue with their environmentally dangerous and carbon polluting processes. So those have to be stopped and we have to look to redirect those to renewable and, and safer uh, energy systems that not only are going to save the planet but also help provide new green jobs for, for the millions of people who are facing the crisis of austerity. What do you see as the main reason that the global community has failed over the last you know, 25 years nearly now to, to solve this problem? Well, it, this, this, this issue isn't ultimately, it's not an environmental issue. I mean, in the sense of a classic environmental issue that there's a, an environmental wrong and you could, all you needed to do was uh, convince governments of, of the fact that there was an environmental wrong. And as soon as governments were aware of it being an environmental wrong, that they would then remedy that situation. So that was and has been and continues to be a, a wrong analysis of the climate crisis. Uh, governments are well aware of climate change and its impacts. The problem is that the changes that are required are of such a deep economic level that will change fundamentally our economies that those in power and those influencing our economies at this moment and our decision makers, they are loath to make those changes. And why would they? I've always said it's, uh, it's like asking, you know, cigarette companies sponsor a conference on lung cancer and then expect them to say stop smoking. Uh, that's just not going to happen. And those are the kind of forces that we've been faced, we're facing. For many years, they've explicitly campaigned and lobbied against the climate science. And when no, they can no longer campaign against the climate science, they've been campaigning to make sure that any action is delayed, is not proportionate to the challenges that are out there and, and includes many, many, many false solutions such as carbon markets. So until we deal with the economic invested interests, I think we're not going to be able to get the kind of agreement that is needed. And the Polish presidency really seems to be shameless in its association with some of the worst polluters. Um, they, they've got more on board as sponsors this year and, and, and they're also holding this world Coal conference at the same time. I mean, I mean, <laughs> that, what are, what are they thinking? How how are we expected to get anything useful out with a presidency that is uh, thinks coal is part of the solution? Absolutely, and it's a very deliberate and a provocative attempt by the I think the Polish uh, presidency. But they, I think, are the most visible and the most open. And so when you hear the Polish government openly say in their own sort of domestic parliament and press that the reason that they want to host the COP was to ensure that their political and economic interests were safeguarded. They would just be much more explicit than uh, other developed countries. The, it's the equivalent of the United States saying that the, the lifestyle of an American citizen is not up for negotiation. That's an impossibility. When an American citizen uh, is personally responsible for over 20 tonnes of CO2, whilst those in Africa have a footprint of less than one. When a toddler by the, year of, by the age of a year, one year old in New York will have emitted more CO2 than somebody in Tanzania will in their whole lifetime, the gross inequality 
inequity of our system um, needs to be challenged. And, and there are lots of very, very powerful figures and interests who just don't want that to happen. So, yes, the polls are being much more explicit. They have been more explicit about the dirty energy sponsorship. So they are sponsoring everything from the pens, paper, water, water coolers, water cups, uh, even the building itself by big dirty energy corporations and are trying to give those dirty energy corporations a much more powerful and enhanced voice in the climate negotiations. Let's not be fooled that that is something new. It's just that many of those corporations have been doing their dirty work behind closed doors and at a national level, and the polls are just being much more explicit about it. But, um, what, but there is a challenge to it, and the Clean Coal Summit, for example, I think will become the focus of, uh, of large civil society protests, of people coming together from the trade union movement, environment, development, as well as communities impacted by dirty coal from around the world, will be simply saying no. We cannot, coal does not have a future. Um, and ensuring that the energy mix that we do have for the future is, you know, is clean, safe and affordable. Okay, and finally, um, what kind of messages do you have for people that aren't going to be able to be in Warsaw but still want to work, work on these issues and, 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 and do something in their own locality? Well, in fact, that's the most important thing. Um, being in Warsaw really is, uh, is not necessary. What we really need to do uh, is we need to build a powerful movement, a movement so powerful that we can put not just hundreds of thousands of people on the streets, but a million people on the street. And if we want an agreement in 2015, that is going to go to somewhere to save not just the planet, but the billions of people who are going to be impacted uh, in terms of drought, famine, hunger, conflict then we need a very powerful climate justice movement. And that has to be connected both at a national and at a global level. So the issues that are fighting at a national level to stop dirty energy corporations are important, and people need to continue to do that, but they need to continue to link those with our demands for to our governments, um, as well in terms of the kind of emissions reductions that are required. And then find those collective moments, such as during Reclaim Power, when we can collectively come together and amplify our strength and engage new people to it. That's the only solution that we have to ensure that those summits themselves come out with something positive. That was Assad Rayman, Friends of the Earth's senior campaigner on international climate issues. Assad's assessment that only a growing amount of agitation is going to jolt us from our present course was the same conclusion reached by a scientist presenting at a recent American Geophysical Union conference. As Naomi Klein noted in her contribution to the Russell Brand edited issue of New Statesman, Brad Werner told the audience of eminent scientists that his advanced computer model was essentially advocating a form of friction such as protests, blockades and sabotage. If we needed a shock to the system, nature arrived with a timely one just days before the talks in Warsaw started. Super Typhoon Haya was the most powerful storm in history. When the Philippines negotiator Yebs Sanyo announced a hunger strike until he saw a meaningful outcome on the opening day of the talks, the reality of dangerous climate impacts was brought powerfully into the heart of the negotiating rooms. Here is Yebs' moving and historic speech in full minus the introductory formalities. Mr. President, 
It was barely 11 months ago in Doha when my delegation made an appeal, an appeal to the world to open our eyes to the stark realities that we face. As then, we confronted a catastrophic storm that resulted in the costliest disaster in Philippine history. Less than a year hence, we cannot imagine that a disaster much bigger would come. With an apparent cruel twist of fate, my country is being tested by this hailstorm called Super Typhoon Haiyan. It was so strong that if there was a Category 6, it would have fallen squarely in that box. And up to this hour, Mr. President, we remain uncertain as to the full extent of the damage and devastation as information trickles in agonizingly slow manner because power lines and communication lines have been cut off and may take a while before they are restored. The initial assessment showed that Haiyan left a wake of massive destruction that is unprecedented, unthinkable, and horrific. According to the Joint Typhoon Warning Center, Haiyan was estimated to have attained sustained winds of 315 kilometers per hour, that's equivalent to 195 miles per hour, and gusts up to 378 kilometers per hour, making it the strongest typhoon in modern recorded history. And despite the massive efforts that my country had exerted in preparing for the onset of this storm, it was just a force too powerful, and even as a nation familiar with storms, Haiyan was nothing we have ever experienced before. Mr. President, the picture in the aftermath is ever slowly coming into clearer focus. The devastation is colossal. And as if this is not enough, another storm is brewing again in the warm waters of the Western Pacific. I shudder at the thought of another typhoon hitting the same places where people have not yet even managed to begin standing up. To anyone outside, who continues to deny and ignore the reality that is climate change, I dare them, I dare them to get off their ivory towers and away from the comfort of their armchairs. I dare them to go to the islands of the Pacific, the Caribbean, the Indian Ocean, and see the impacts of rising sea levels, to the mountainous regions of the Himalayas and the Andes, to see communities confronting glacial floods, to the Arctic where communities grapple with the fast-dwindling sea ice sheets, the large deltas of the Mekong, the Ganges, the Amazon, the Nile, where lives and livelihoods are drowned, to the hills of Central America that confront similar monstrous hurricanes, to the, to the vast savannas of Africa where climate change has likewise become a matter of life and death as food and water become scarce. Not to forget the monstrous storms in the Gulf of Mexico and the eastern seaboard of North America as well as the fires that have raised down under. And if that is not enough, they may want to see what has happened to the Philippines now. Mr. President, I need not elaborate on the science, as Dr. Pachauri has done, done that already for us. But it tells us simply that climate change will mean increased potential for more intense tropical storms. And this will have profound implications on many of our communities, especially those who struggle against the twin challenges of the development crisis and the climate crisis. And typhoons such as Haiyan and its impacts represent a sobering reminder to the international community that we cannot afford to delay climate action. Warsaw must deliver on enhancing ambition and should muster the political will to address climate change and build that important bridge towards Peru and Paris. It, may, it might be said that it must be poetic justice that the typhoon Haiyan was so big that its diameter spanned the distance between Warsaw and Paris. 
Mr. President, in Doha, we asked, if not us, then who? If not now, then when? If not here, then where? But here, in Warsaw, we may very well ask these same forthright questions. What my country is going through as a result of this extreme climate event is madness. The climate crisis is madness. Mr. President, we can stop this madness right here in Warsaw. It is the 19th COP, but we might as well stop counting because my country refuses to accept that a COP30 or a COP40 will be needed to solve climate change. And because it seems that despite the significant gains we have had since the UNFCCC was born, 20 years hence, we continue to fall short in fulfilling the ultimate objective of the Convention. Now we find ourselves in a situation where we have to ask ourselves, can we ever attain the ultimate objective of the Convention, which is to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system? By failing to meet the objective of the Convention, we may have ratified our own doom. And if we have failed to meet the objective of the Convention, we have to confront the issue of loss and damage. Loss and damage is a reality today across the world. And developed country emissions, reductions targets are dangerously low and must be raised immediately. But even if these were in line with the demand of reducing 40 to 50 percent below 1990 levels, we will still have locked in climate change and we still would need to address the issue of loss and damage. Mr. President, I beg your indulgence as I co continue this statement. We find ourselves at a critical juncture, and the situation is that even the most ambitious emissions reductions by developed countries, who should have been taking the lead in the last two decades, will not be enough to avert the climate crisis. It is now too late, too late to talk about the world being able to rely on Annex I countries to solve the climate crisis. We have entered a new era that demands global solidarity in order to fight climate change and ensure that the pursuit of sustainable human development remains at the fore of the global community's efforts. This is why the means of implementation for developing countries becomes ever so crucial. We cannot sit and stay helpless staring at this international climate stalemate. It is now time to raise ambition and take action. We need an emergency climate pathway. Mr. President, I speak for my delegation, but I, I speak, speak for the countless people who will no longer be able to speak for themselves after perishing from the storm. I speak also for those who have been orphaned by the storm. I speak for those who have the people now raising its time to save survivors and alleviate the suffering of the people affected. We can take drastic action now to ensure that we prevent a future where super typhoons become a way of life. Because we refuse as a nation to accept a future where super typhoons like Haiyan become a way of life. We refuse to accept that running away from storms, evacuating our families, suffering the devastation and misery, counting our dead become a way of life. We simply refuse to. Mr. President, even in the context of the obvious imperative for adaptation, my country does not come with empty hands. The Philippines had enacted a renewable energy law, which mandates the establishment of feed-in tariffs for renewable energy. 
with the aspiration of doubling our renewable energy capacity by 2020 and tripling it by the year 2030, pursuant to our National Renewable Energy Program. Now, as has become very clear, the Philippines grapples with serious challenges in the face of climate impacts. It may be unreasonable to ask the ordinary Filipino to bear the burden of increased power rates because of feed-in tariffs until renewables reach grid parity. I challenge our friends, our partners from developed countries to finance this incremental cost of the portion of the Philippine feed-in tariff that would otherwise be paid for by the impoverished electricity consumer and only until renewables reach grid parity with fossil fuel or conventional fuels. We call this our socialized feed-in tariff. By our estimate, it is only in the neighborhood of $500 million. We estimate also that renewables will reach grid parity by 2020. If developed countries would finance this cost, we can triple our renewable energy capacity by 2030. If developed countries will gladly come forward to provide the resources for this, we will be ready to inscribe this as our nationally appropriate mitigation action. Because we believe in renewables, we believe in sustainable development, and because we believe that solving climate change is our moral duty. This moral duty is applicable to all parties. Now, Mr. President, if you will allow me, I wish to speak on a more personal note. Super Typhoon Haiyan, perhaps unknown to many here, made landfall in my own family's hometown. And the devastation is staggering. I struggle to find words even for the images that we see on the news coverage. And I struggle to find words to describe how I feel about the losses. Up to this hour, I agonize waiting for word to the fate of my very own relatives. What gives me renewed strength and great relief is that my own brother has communicated to us and he had survived the, the onslaught. In the last two days, he has been gathering bodies of the dead with his own two hands. He is very hungry and weary as food supplies find it difficult to arrive in that hardest hit area. Mr. President, these last two days, there are moments when I feel that I should rally behind climate advocates who peacefully confront those historically responsible for the current state of our climate. These selfless people who fight coal, expose themselves to freezing temperatures or black oil pipelines. In fact, we are seeing increasing frustration and thus more increased civil disobedience. The next two weeks, these people and many around the world who serve as our conscience will again remind us of this enormous responsibility. To the youth here who constantly remind us that their future is in peril. To the climate heroes who risk their lives, reputation, personal liberties to stop drilling in polar regions and to those communities standing up to unsustainable and climate disrupting sources of energy, we stand with them. We cannot solve problems at the same level of awareness that created them, as Dr. Pachari alluded to Einstein earlier. We cannot solve climate change when we seek to spew more emissions. Mr. President, and I express this with all sincerity, in solidarity with my countrymen who are struggling to find food back home, and with my brother who has not had food for the last three days, with all due respect, Mr. President, and I mean no disrespect for your kind hospitality, 
I will now commence a voluntary fasting for the climate. This means I will voluntarily refrain from eating food during this COP until a meaningful outcome is in sight, until concrete pledges have been made to ensure mobilization of resources for the Green Climate Fund. We cannot afford a fourth COP with an empty GCF until the promise of the operationalization of a loss and damage mechanism has been fulfilled, until there is assurance on finance for adaptation, until we see real ambition on climate action in accordance with the principles we have so upheld. Mr. President, this process under the UNFCCC has been called many, many names. It has been called a farce. It has been called an annual carbon-intensive gathering of useless frequent flyers. It has been called many names, and this hurts. But we can prove them wrong. The UNFCCC can also be called the project to save the planet. It has also been called saving tomorrow today, a couple of years ago. And today we say, I care. We can fix this. We can stop this madness right now right here in the middle of this football field and stop moving the goalposts. Mr. President, Your Excellency, Honorable Minister, my delegation calls on you most respectfully to lead us and let Poland and Warsaw be remembered forever as the place where we truly cared to stop this madness. If this is our imperative here in Warsaw, you can rely on my delegation. Now, can humanity rise to this occasion? Mr. President, I still believe we can. Thank you, Mr. President. Thank you. That was Yeb Sanyo, the Philippines negotiator, announcing his fast for the climate during the opening session of the UN climate talks in Warsaw on the 11th of November. And it's interesting to note that many delegates from campaign and youth groups have been joining Seb in his fast as an act of solidarity. The latest IPCC report calculated the safe amount of emissions that are available to us if we want to keep global average temperature rise within 1.5 to 2 degrees centigrade. One key task of the conference, therefore, if it is to achieve its central objective, is to inscribe this safe carbon budget into the agreement and work out how to share this fairly. In a dangerously preemptive and undemocratic move, the Executive Secretary to the UN talks, Christina Figueres, spoke out in advance against doing precisely this, saying it would be too politically difficult. I spoke to Christian Aid's climate talks expert, Mohamed Addo, about Christina's remarks and about how countries could agree to share the remaining emissions budget using principles already agreed by the nearly 200 countries represented at the talks. 
Christina Figueres did say in The Guardian that it would be you know, politically very difficult to even talk about this. She says, I don't know who would hold the pen in terms of setting out allocations of future budgets. Um, until we see the carbon budget um, embedded in the, the UN talks, all our efforts to stay within a two, two, two degrees limit are, are, will come to naught. You know, if we continue at our current emissions levels, we will have used up uh, the remaining carbon budget in about 25 years. So we wouldn't have any more carbon to emit, which means then that if we're serious about the two-degree objective, we need to actually engage the carbon budget uh, approach so that we are in line with what science says is required. We're in a situation now where the less well-off developing countries are actually leading the world towards uh, carbon climate change. And the developed world, and I can give you the example of Canada, Australia, Japan, are breaking their climate promises. These countries are cowed by the dirty energy industry, uh, and, and they are actually setting the world on a race to the bottom. We must stop them. We need to be able to protect uh, the planet, both for the current, but also for the future generation. We need to protect our food production systems that are threatened by climate change. We need to protect, uh, you know, people like in Philippines and in other countries who are already feeling fast and worst the impact of climate change. We need to shift the world from, you know, the dirty energy pathway we are on to a clean and sustainable pathway. If we are serious about climate change, and I believe we are, uh, we, it's time we actually rose to the challenge. Let the typhoon, the high-end typhoon be a wake-up call for the world to act, and act in a way that is both ambitious but also fair. Okay, so in sharing this kind of effort, um, both to reduce emissions and to fund developing countries to develop cleanly, what principles are you using? My understanding is that the, the principles are actually coming out of language that is in the original United Nations Framework Convention of 1992 that everyone is signed up to. That's right. Uh, in 1992, countries uh, agreed to cooperatively prevent dangerous climate change and to be able to adapt naturally to climate change and ensure uh, food production is not threatened and the world economy can proceed in a sustainable manner. The core principles in the conventions include the adequacy principle, which requires countries to undertake uh, emissions reductions efforts to prevent dangerous climate change and to be able to provide effective adaptation to the poorest and most vulnerable countries. Uh, the second and, and important principle in the convention is this idea of the right to sustainable development, which explicitly focuses on safeguarding the sustainable development rights of the poorest countries, countries who aspire to attain a decent standard of living. For those countries, what we will require to do is to actually help them move towards a low carbon development with the means of implementation, particularly finance and clean technology provided by those countries with historical responsibility, but also with greater capacity. There's this clear principle that all countries have agreed to, 
so essentially rich countries have historically used up the majority of the of the carbon budget and also they have currently the biggest capacity to pay that obviously the, they're the rich richest nations by definition so they should be making the biggest effort um, and you've kind of worked out a system of actually quantifying the amount of effort that each country would make so I'm kind of interested to know really how the effort that you think countries should be making how that matches up to what currently countries are saying that they are going to do uh, countries in have acknowledged that there is actually ambition gap uh, they've proposed to close this through additional actions including new and enhanced uh, mitigation pledges uh, and, and actions to face down uh, gases that are polluting the atmosphere and to shift subsidies from dirty energy to clean energy and to undertake uh, international cooperative actions around renewable energy and energy efficiency. So these are commitments that parties have made. They need to follow through and be able to deliver them. Uh, we also must agree a, a clear timeline on increasing the ambition of, of the countries in the pre-2020 period. And, and the kind of commitments we're looking for are pledges that will actually meet what science says is required to stay below the two degrees. What is required is for emissions to actually peak around 2015 and, and for countries to publicly state that they will be raising their ambitions levels, they will be contributing to the Global Climate Fund adequate financing to support the adaptation requirements of those countries that are affected by climate change, but also to support countries, particularly the poorest, to develop in a clean manner. So what kind of obligation does a country like the US have under this framework? The US has about 4.5% of the global population. Uh, if you look at climate uh, emissions from just 1990, they are responsible for 27% of the global emissions. If you look at U.S. capacity, and when I talk about capacity, I'm looking at the national income uh, adjusted for uh, purchasing power parity. U.S. has about a third of that, of the total of the world, which means then that U.S. has to take on about a third of the global responsibility. Uh, the current industrialized countries where about 17-18% of the global population live, will then be required to take on uh, nearly two-thirds of the emissions uh, obligations. And if you look at these same countries, uh, these are the same countries that have nearly 60% of the global income. Once you've adjusted for and excluded the proportion of the population that lives below the development threshold, so if you actually adjust income for basic needs, uh, you realize the global capacity is currently sits with uh, the rich industrialized countries. Uh, and, and it's these countries that have to actually pay for a lot of the actions that will be required by developing countries. So countries like the US and country blocks like the EU they really shoulder the bulk of the responsibility in terms of sorting this problem out. But we have a kind of a, a gap, don't we, of, of, in terms of ambition. What you're saying we need, 
and what British countries are saying they're prepared to do. There's a huge gap, isn't there, right now? There is a gap, and, and this is a gap that has been with us since Copenhagen when parties put forward the initial mitigation reduction offers and, you know, the, the initial climate finance commitment. On the side of emissions, there's a difference between the emissions the world is on course to produce and the ambition level required to stay on track for the two-degree pathway. If you look at climate finance, uh, the world collectively committed to mobilize 100 billion by 2020. There was a commitment to deliver the fast start finance at $10 billion between 2009 and 2012. But for the period between 2013 to 2020, there is currently no collective commitment on climate finance. But what parties have done is acknowledge these gaps and they've indicated that they will be closing the gap. But we need to actually be seeing concrete actions. We need to be seeing parties scaling up their climate finance commitments, parties raising their mitigation commitments, so that we are on course for the two degree. Otherwise, we will be shooting beyond the agreed global climate objective of the two degree. I understand that the principles around which you've developed your framework are embedded in the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and um, in that sense everybody's kind of already signed up to this approach but in, in practice now as the negotiations are going forward um, how much support is there around this particular approach? Civil society supports our equity principles, our equity indicators and the framework we've put forward Government have also started talking about equity in, in ways that are linked to the convention principles and they've acknowledged these principles and have committed not to reinterpret them. Um, governments like the South African government and the Africa group that includes 54 African countries and the least developed country parties uh, are supportive of uh, our ideas. And we're pleased to note that the volume on equity has been turned up this year. But what we need uh, is to establish a clear vision, uh, one that captures the UNFCC principles uh, in a way that they can be operationalized. And we're looking forward for also to actually forge a clear plan uh, that is based on the principles and provisions of the convention. But we are far away from where we ought to be. Warsaw has to actually bridge the gap between the developed and developing countries and between the different government views and increase understanding on the need for effort sharing, uh, which is what is required to be able to deliver an effective uh, 2015 deal in Paris. Even though you know we're, we're expecting a, a a deal to be agreed in Paris in 2015. The idea currently is it's not going to come into effect until 2020. Is is there um, any particular reason why it has to take five years before, before being enforced, or is, is there any way of kind of moving that timetable forward? Uh, governments give themselves until 2015 to agree a new deal, which only takes effect in 2020, which in effect means that governments are delaying the desperately needed climate action. Uh, but part of government also agreed to actually ramp up their pre-2020 ambition because 
2020 is actually going to be too late for all poor people who are on the front line. What is needed are urgent, ambitious actions in the pre-2020 period. And, and so they must agree between now and Paris in 2015 on concrete steps in the, for the pre-2020 period to be able to curb uh, the rise in the world's emissions and to be able to deliver the climate support that is required both to adapt and cope with the changing climate but also uh, to be able to shift towards uh, a clean development pathway. That was Mohamed Addo, senior climate campaigner at Christian Aid, speaking to me on the line from Warsaw a few days ago. And we can use the indicators developed by Christian Aid and others to determine the amount of effort countries should be making now without waiting until Paris in 2015. We can make sure our governments become familiar with the actual scale of emissions cuts and international climate funds they need to contribute so that we avoid dangerous climate change and safeguard the poorest from its impacts. We didn't have time to talk in depth in this programme about other great ideas on the table from civil society, about ending fossil fuel subsidies, global feed-in tariffs, ending new fossil fuel developments, alternatives to carbon markets, getting an agreement to keep dirty energy companies and other vested interests from influencing climate policy, and other things that could be agreed in Warsaw this week if there was the political will. But I was able to speak to Liddy Nackpill from the anti-debt coalition Jubilee South about another concrete outcome that civil society is pushing for, the establishment of a loss and damage mechanism to make sure we continue to help people like those in the Philippines when disaster strikes. I mean, it seems an odd coincidence that the most powerful storm in history should uh, hit just before, days before the, the, the UN talks uh, opened. I mean, this, but, but this is, is this something you've been personally affected by? Um, well, yes, I have many friends and colleagues in this area. We have uh, member organizations in this area, in this island. And so we do, yes, we know people personally who have lost some of their relatives, many who have lost their homes completely. So, yes, uh, we are affected. I mean, it's almost impossible to comprehend the, 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 the devastation, really. I mean, what, what, what is your sense of, of the impact, really? Um, well, because we left the Philippines just as the typhoon was entering the area of responsibility of the Philippines, so um, what we have seen are really mainly from the video clips, and we, we waited for more than a day to see because communications we're down completely for more than a day and still down in some of the areas. So it's, we know these places, this city, so it's, it's really horrible to see how, how much it has been just completely flattened out. No trees, no, no houses were left standing in many, many areas. So, yeah, and the, the scenes, even today, because of course, the uh, news co covers it every day, still moves us. This also strengthens the case though, doesn't it, for the, the loss and damage fund that um, people have been discussing at the, the talks? Well, it What's is it? our hope that if that there's at least one good thing that can come out of here is that it serves 
as a strong reminder to the government of how urgent it is of the whole agenda for climate change is urgent, including, of course, the the push for a loss and damage mechanism and and clear pledges and work plan for a roadmap for raising finance for adaptation and loss and damage. But also, of course, we're hoping that this gives uh, lends further urgency to raising ambition on uh, cutting of emissions. But as we are here observing and also trying to intervene in the way the negotiations are going, it doesn't give us very much hope that, in fact, governments are listening because there's still a lot of obstruction being posed by governments like the U.S. and Australia to any progress on the negotiations on loss and damage. So, in in particular, there's still no clarity in terms of their commitments to scaling up finance and raising finance. So, I don't know, there's a big difference between what we can expect and what we should be demanding from these negotiations. So, you're saying that the U.S. and Australia are actively blocking the loss and damage funds currently? Yes, that's what we have seen so far, yes. But on the civil society front, there's been a big petition, I understand, and there's also a rally coming up. Oh, yeah, there's actually many civil society um, actions and interventions on this. Here in Warsaw, there's a mobilization tomorrow, so that this would be one of the messages. And then there's a petition on Avast that uh, was started, so that's also an indication of many responses on this. But there's also many other civil society initiatives in the Philippines in particular, among youth groups here who are doing a sympathy fasting. So it's all been quite moving, in fact, uh, except that there's no corresponding movement on the part of governments. One final thing on the loss and damage fund. Am I right to understand that uh, this was something that that, that, um, was actually promised at some point? Well... In Doha, that was one of the very few, you know, highlights, positive highlights of Doha, that there was an indication that there will be an agreement that will be reached here in Warsaw for a loss and damage mechanism. But that is not coming to fruition after all. I mean, there's no sign that we will actually make a movement so we have three, fund, yeah. three funds now, the, the, the loss and damage fund, the adaptation fund, and the green climate fund. None of them ha- really have any yes. money in at all. No, no, no money, especially the green climate fund. The, the adaptation fund has some, but that's really pathetically small. And then the green climate fund is still an empty fund. And all the uh, U.S. seems to, and, and the rich countries seem to talk about, is trying to somehow incentivize corporations to, to, yeah. to, 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 to have a corporation. actually put in investments. So there's uh, very little uh, actual money being pledged, and all the public money that the, the rich countries are talking about are money that they want to put in in order to be used to leverage private funds. So... It's not even public money going to people, it's public money going to corporations so that they can have incentives to invest. And, I mean, where are all the discussions around, you know, national finances, financial transaction tax, all these other ways of raising money, and perhaps um, 
transferring fossil fuel subsidies, also redirecting that to kind of renewable energy? Yeah, well, there's a, a whole lot of ideas about how to raise money, including, you know, what they term as innovative ways of raising money. But um, these are still ideas not being implemented yet, and the governments have to have the political will to move forward with this, like the financial transaction taxes. Some governments have been sympathetic, and some have uh, kind of adopted resolutions internally. But for this to really work, it has to be a global effort. So uh, there's still a lot of push towards this. But, of course, we're also saying that these are not to replace outright pledges by governments to mobilize public funds to actually levy taxes on the corporations so that they will be able to gather the funds, public funds, to give to us directly. Because we're not saying that corporations should not give money. They should. Money should be coming from them. But we don't want to take it on as investments from them. We want to take them on. We want to receive them as public funds that are committed to climate programs in the South not as investments from private corporations. Most insultingly, at one point, they, they were suggesting that these um, funds should be in the form of loans, I remember. Exactly. If they're not actually just suggesting it, it's a lot of the funds that, for instance, the UK is talking about, that they have committed or given as climate funds are actually in the form of loans. Right. So they're supposed to be paying for the impacts of the a crisis they created, but instead we're going to have to pay for them ourselves. With interest. Yes, in yeah. fact. interest. Saddling you with new debts. Um, yes. Great. Um, but, I mean, I don't know where rich countries are going with this. Are, are they never going to wake up? Is there never going to be a moment where they say, actually, like the IPCC has just said, you know, we're on a pathway to a five-degree world, which is a, a catastrophe, and um, yeah. the only thing the only thing that can save us is is an unprecedented unprecedented emergency response. Can you see that light bulb switching on at any point? Do you see any no, trigger for that? I don't think so. I think that we have the same question because apparently, even what has happened in the Philippines is not enough to uh, wake them up you know, or move them to do what they should. Right, that's a fairly bleak out outlook. I mean, nothing from civil society, nothing from a kind of divestment campaign that might... Um, uh... Well, we're not. We haven't lost hope, of course. We have a lot of uh, faith and confidence that if we, you know, build our strength, scale up our actions, mobilize together everywhere, we'll be able to reach a point where, when we can actually force governments to do something. But we're not there yet. So there's a lot of work ahead. We're saying at this moment, we're not yet that strong enough to compel them. And even tragedies like Typhoon Yolanda in the Philippines is not enough to wake them up. But it doesn't mean we're giving up or that we're losing hope. But that, that hope lies in what we can, you know, the kind of strength that we can build amongst ourselves. That was Liddy Nakpil of Jubilee South at the UN talks in Warsaw a few days ago. If Super Typhoon Yolanda proves insufficient to jolt political elites into doing the right thing, then it's us that is going to have to make the difference. As John F. Kennedy said to Martin Luther King 
and the March on Washington Committee in 1963 about the civil rights legislation he would eventually sign a year later. Go out and make me do it. You've been listening to Climate Radio. Visit our archive for references and to listen to other programmes. It's at climateradio.org. Thanks for listening.